you have your Bibles, join me in Galatians chapter 6. Galatians chapter 6. As we go and we come into this time of year, depending on where you're at, this is a harvest time of year. And so, uh, Brother Jared mentioned fall. Now, everybody has their own definition of fall. For some people, it's when the leaves start changing. For some people, it's on the calendar when you hit, I think, tomorrow or something like that today is the official start of fall. My definition of the beginning of fall is when you have a full day in which the temperature never gets out of the 70s. That, that to me, is the definition of fall. And fall has hit when you never break the 70s all day long or break out of the 70s. So I, I am still waiting for fall, but we're getting closer and you, you can feel it coming on. But it's about the time of year where you can go do your apple picking if you want to. And it's just a harvest time of year. Galatians chapter 6 teaches us a law of harvest that is completely true, completely biblical. And we're going to come back and look at how this law of harvest helps us understand a principle about grace as we have been going through the Ten Commandments, we are transitioning now from the Ten Commandments as the Lord gave them to Ten Commandments of Grace. You could call this Ten Testimonies of Grace, Ten Truths about Grace, Ten Aspects of Grace that we see now in how God uses grace in our lives. And we're going to begin in Galatians chapter 6. So this morning you're going to have to stay with me. We're going to begin in Galatians chapter 6 to see the law of the harvest. Then, from here, we're going to look at a great illustration of this principle, and then we're going to see how it applies in our life. So let's get going. Galatians chapter 6, verse 7. Be not deceived. God is not mocked. For whatsoever a man soweth, that shall he also reap. For he that soweth to his flesh shall of the flesh reap corruption. But he that soweth to the Spirit shall of the Spirit reap life everlasting. And let us not be weary in well-doing, for in due season we shall reap if we faint not. Now, the law of the harvest is simple. There's a threefold law of the harvest. One, you reap what you sow. You plant corn, you get corn. So you reap what you sow. You reap later than you sow. You plant the seed, it has to die in the ground, it then has to grow up, and eventually you plant that corn, you will get corn. So you reap what you sow, you reap later than you sow, and then finally you reap more than you sow. So that is the law of the harvest. Now, if you've ever been involved in any kind of planting, you know that all of those things are true. But you also know they're not always true. Meaning, you can plant something and actually get something different because you didn't know what you were planting. Okay, so, so that can happen. In fact, some of you may not know this, if you plant a row of corn right here and right next to it you plant another row of corn, and you plant in this row of corn gold queen corn, which is gold, okay? And then in this row, you plant silver queen corn, which is silver. Great, you guys are catching on, okay? So you got, you got yellow corn and white corn, and you plant those two right next to each other. They will actually cross-pollinate as they're growing, and you will end up with peaches and cream, which means you have yellow and white little corn kernels on each ear of corn. I know some of you are going, no, that's not true. It really is true. It does happen. And so you can plant gold queen and you can actually get peaches and cream. You guys didn't even know there were this many different kinds of corn, did you? All right, so here you go. So you, you're learning your lessons here. You, you plant these two things and though what you planted doesn't come out exactly the same because of cross-pollination, but there's a reason behind it. You can also plant 
and you can get nothing. Now, if you have a brown thumb instead of a green thumb, you can plant that seed, and in the end, you don't get any fruits or vegetables off of what you planted. We have a little peach tree that the people before us planted in our yard at the house, and there we never get any peaches off of that thing. I think some squirrels or crows may get a couple every now and then, but we never do. So you can plant and get something a little bit different than what you sowed. You can actually plant and not get back what you sowed. Now, the, the thing that you can't do is plant and not get something later than you sowed. That, that's always going to be true. If you're going to get something, it's going to be later. When we look at grace, the law of the harvest helps us understand the normal way that life works. It is incredibly valuable to us, spiritually speaking, and it is the principle that we should build our life off of because it is a predictable principle. So that if I will plant right things in my life, I will reap right things in my life, and I will reap them later on in my life. And so that's absolutely true. It will happen. But there are times when it comes to fruits and vegetables, that you can actually get something that you never planted. If you go along a fence line, say you're out and you see some open fields, and you go along the fence line, oftentimes in that fence line, you will find what is considered to be wild blackberries or wild raspberries or some type of a wild fruit. In fact, in my yard, right by my air conditioning unit, I have no idea why I have little strawberries that grow. Now, when I say they grow, they grow until I mow the grass because... I just mow right over them, but, but we do have some wild little strawberries that grow. Those wild blackberries, wild raspberries that grow are the result of a bird eating raspberries somewhere, recycling those, sitting on that fence post, and then redepositing those seeds, and then you get wild blackberries. But with a wild blackberry, with a wild raspberry, and my favorite is wild black raspberries, you don't actually do any planting. They just kind of happen. When we look at grace, I want us to understand that grace is not, I plant grace, therefore I get grace from God. Early on, this was mentioned, and tonight, today, we want to just really look at this. Grace cannot be earned. It is given. The thing about wild raspberries, you can't plant them or they're not wild. Grace cannot be earned. It's just given. And I want us to look at this unbelievable illustration in which you look at it and you go, but, but he didn't deserve grace. Turn over to Genesis chapter 37. Genesis chapter 37. When we look at grace... With this idea of harvest in mind, we recognize that outside of the law of harvest, God can show grace even when it is not earned. Oftentimes, you will hear people, especially in this day and age, who will make a statement something to the effect of, why do bad things happen to good people? Really, the question we should be asking is kind of the opposite. Why do good things happen to bad people? Because the reality is, all of us are sinners. 
all of us have done wrong. Now, you may be better than someone else in your own view, but the reality is all of us do things wrong. And just as sin sometimes results in bad things happening to good people, so grace creates the possibility of good things happening to undeserving people. The presence of sin in this world means that we sometimes, excuse me, that we sometimes don't get the good that we deserve. But the presence of grace means that sometimes we don't get the consequences we deserve. Genesis 37, join me in verse 2. These are the generations of Jacob. Joseph, being 17 years old, was feeding the flock with his brethren, and the lad was with the sons of Bilhah and with the sons of Zilpha, his father's wives, and Joseph brought unto his father their evil report. So Joseph is one of multiple brothers here, so there is soon to be 12 of them. Uh, so 10, 10 or 12, I'm getting it wrong up here. Somebody help me. 12, thank you. Drawing a blank. All right, so there's 12 of them. I'm sleep-deprived already, can you tell? And at this moment, Joseph goes out. He sees what his brothers are doing. He comes back. He tells his dad that his brothers are, are not doing as they should. It now creates this hardship between Joseph and his brothers that's going to begin to fester. Well, as a process of this, it continues to get worse. Now Israel loved Joseph more than all his children because he was the son of his old age and he made him a coat of many colors. So now there is a visible representation to each of his other brothers at this point that dad likes him more. And that in dad loving him more in this visible representation of it, they recognize that Joseph has a love that they can never earn from their father. It begins to generate hard feelings. You see, his presence was a daily reminder to his brothers that they could never earn the extent of the love Joseph was so freely given from their father. There in verse 4, And when his brethren saw that their father loved him more than all his brethren, they hated him and could not speak peaceably unto him. This hatred continues to grow, and Joseph makes a miscalculation here. Now, whether God is using it, and ultimately he does, but Joseph has a dream that one day his brothers will bow down before him. He then goes to his brothers and he shares this dream, looking in verse 6. And he said unto them, Here I pray you this dream which I have dreamed. For behold, we were binding sheaves in the field, and lo, my sheaf arose and also stood upright. And behold, your sheaves stood round about and made obeisance to my sheep. So they bowed down and worshipped. Verse 8. And his brethren said to him, Shalt thou indeed reign over us, or shalt thou indeed have dominion over us? And they hated him yet the more for his dreams and for his words. Verse 9. And he dreamed yet another dream. And now in this dream his dad falls down and worships him. And the brothers just begin to hate him, and they're angry at, them, at him. So they make a plan. What we're going to do is we're going to take care of our brother. So eventually, Jacob sends Joseph. Joseph goes to the place where his brothers are at, a, a good journey from his home. When he gets there, the brothers see him, and they make this plan. So they take him, and they throw him into a pit, and they want to kill him. Reuben, the oldest brother, tries to save his life, and so he puts him in this dried-out cistern for him to stay in. In verse 26 of chapter 37, we see now Judah. 
Judah said unto his brethren, What profit is it if we slay our brother and conceal his blood? Come, and let us sell him to the Ishmaelites, and let not our hand be upon him, for he is our brother and our flesh, and his brethren were content. I want us to begin now to shift the focus of your mind from Joseph to Judah. Okay, With Joseph, we see in Joseph, here was a kid who did right, who God had a plan for his life. And if you look at Joseph, you go, okay, he's sowing good things, therefore he should reap those good things. Now, eventually he does. But at this point in Joseph's life, Joseph honestly has not done anything to deserve this treatment. But his brothers hate him. And it's all because his dad loves him. And they get so angry at him, they want to kill him. And they decide not to kill him, and Judah comes up with this brilliant plan. Hey, here's what we'll do. Let's take our brother, and instead of killing him, let's sell him and make some money off of him. We tend to fantasize this a little bit, but when they sell Joseph into the hands of the Ishmaelites, do you think he fought this? I would have. I don't think he went along peacefully. I think he would have voiced it. Whoa, whoa, they don't have a right to sell me. And yet Joseph is sold, and he goes on. And the truth is, in Joseph's life, things continue to get worse. He's sold again. He raises up into Potiphar's house. He's falsely accused. He goes into prison. He spends an extended amount of time in prison. So Joseph, at this moment is not reaping grace. But let's look at Judah. Judah's life takes some very complicated turns. Judah goes on to have three sons. Join me in chapter 38 of Genesis, verse 7. And Ur, Judah's firstborn, was wicked. So now we have his oldest son. His oldest son had been uh, married to a young lady by the name of Tamar. But he is wicked in the sight of the Lord, and the Lord slew him. So Jewish custom in that day, when a son married that daughter, if they did not have children, then the brother of the son who died would marry that young lady and raise up a child to, her brother's, or to his brother's name. Well, in this case, the first son marries Tamar. The son dies. Tamar marries the second son. The second son dies, and there are still no children. So the third son says, no, thank you, I'm not interested. In, no, the, the third son is too young at this point, so he can't marry her. So Judah looks at his daughter-in-law and says, give me some time, and when he's old enough, I will let him marry you so that you can have a child unto the names of my other sons. So that's kind of the way this is unfolding. Well, the, the youngest son grows up. He gets a little bit older. And as he gets older, Judah does not pass on the information that now he's ready to marry Tamar. So Tamar finds out that the son is now old enough, but that the dad won't let him marry her. And so Tamar comes up with a plan of her own. And this is where things get really, as if it weren't bizarre enough already. Okay, so it gets really, really bizarre here. So Tamar makes a plan. What she does is Tamar basically deceives her own father-in-law. She dresses up like a prostitute. 
She goes, she deceives him into coming into her. She gets pregnant by her father-in-law. And then she takes some, a ring and a band of his. She takes those things and she hides until it becomes obvious that she's pregnant. Judah finds out that his daughter-in-law has gotten pregnant and it wasn't by his son. So he now defines, according to those cultures, she has been unfaithful and she can be put to death. So he brings her before the court to have her put to death. Judah's response to what she had done was put her to death. They get in front of the judges, and she goes, Well, here, let me show you these. These are who the baby's daddy is. And she shows them, and Judah goes, Uh-oh. He realizes this is his baby. Now, again, all kind of messed up at this point, all right? But Judah now recognizes that he was the one who did wrong. Judah wanted for Tamar death. Who deserved the death? Judah. But Judah doesn't want that for him. You see, at this point, we begin to see how the law of sowing and reaping is being thwarted. Judah deserves worse than what he's getting. He sold his brother into slavery. He now has raised his children up to be wicked. And you look at the example of how he acts, and you go, well, no wonder his boys were wicked. And he wants for his daughter-in-law death, but he wants for himself mercy. At this point, we begin to see grace being shown in his life when he does not deserve it. As he goes and he stands there before her, you can see it in verse 26 of chapter 38. And Judah acknowledged them and said, She hath been more righteous than I. At this point, Judah has proven to be the mess that he is. Now, let's jump forward in the story and we'll put it all together. Judah sold his brother as a slave. He now impregnated his daughter-in-law. Years later, Judah and his brothers stand before Joseph. They recognize as they stand before Joseph their guilt. In Genesis chapter 44, verse 32, we see how Judah now makes a guarantee before Jacob for Benjamin's safety as he's traveling back and forth trying to get more food as they're stuck in the middle of this famine. In verse 32, For thy servant became surety for the lad unto my father, saying, If I bring him not unto thee, then I shall bear the blame to my father forever. Now therefore I pray thee, let thy servant abide instead of the lad, a bondman to my Lord, and let the lad go up with his brethren. Finally, Judah's character is starting to change here. For how shall I go up to my father, and the lad be not with me? Lest peradventure I see the evil that shall come on my father. Years ago, Judah goes, eh, let's sell him as a slave. It doesn't matter. Now Judah's standing up for Benjamin. He's going, look, let me be the slave. Just send Benjamin back. Judah should have been dead at this point. But God has begun to show him some grace he didn't deserve. He hadn't earned it. His life was completely against it. But he's beginning to change just a little bit. There in chapter 45, verse 5. 
We read, Now therefore be not grieved nor angry with yourselves, this is Joseph speaking to his brothers, that ye sold me hither. For God did send me before you to preserve life. Judah is in this place where he's going, Oh no. He realizes now that the one he sold into slavery is the guy who can have him put to death. And Joseph calms him. He says, look, it's, it's okay. Even at that moment, Joseph is showing this unbelievable amount of grace to Judah, and he doesn't deserve it. And yet, God uses Joseph to show it. As is always the case with grace, Judah got exactly what he deserved least. Grace is simply the goodness of God, and we don't deserve it. Because grace cannot be earned, it's given. But it's not as if just this moment is the end of that grace that's given to Judah. It goes on. You see, years later, Jacob is now coming to the end of his life. He's there. As he's getting ready to die, Jacob calls his boys in front of him. There's a birthright that goes in the custom, and the oldest son should have been given it. Reuben steps forward, but he will not be given the blessing from Jacob because of the lifestyle that he has had. You see, after that, Simeon and Levi are the next two in line. They had deceived and murdered an entire village because of their sister. And Jacob again will not give them the blessing that should have been Reuben's. And the next steps up Judah. As Judah reluctantly steps forward, if any of them had forfeited a birthright, it was Judah. But turn over to Genesis 49, verse 8. In Genesis 49, 8, Jacob looks at Judah and he says, Judah, thou art he whom thy brethren shall praise. Thy hand shall be in the neck of thine enemies. Thy father's children shall bow down before thee. Judah is a lion's whelp. From the prey, my son, thou art gone up. He stooped down. He couched as a lion, as an old lion. Who shall rouse him up? The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor a lawgiver from between his feet, until Shiloh come, and until him shall the gathering of his people be. Now, the wordiness of that we can miss. Jacob looks at Judah, and he says, Abraham was given a promise. And that promise is that through us, there will come a Messiah one day who will save his people. And Judah, Judah, you're the one. Judah, you see, through you, God's going to send the Savior who will redeem mankind. God's going to send Shiloh. God is going to use you. You're going to be where all the kings come from. Judah, you're going to be the ruler of our people. Judah didn't deserve this. You see, once again, the law of sowing and reaping was thwarted. By this time, it was thwarted by grace. As it turned out, Judah never really got what he deserved. As is always the case with grace, he got exactly what he deserved least. There's a second commandment of grace I want us to see this morning. We're about to apply it to ourselves. You see, grace is not reserved for good people. Grace underscores the goodness of God. Now put those two things together. 
Grace cannot be earned, it's given. Judah is a clear example. He did not deserve grace. It was given to him in spite of how terrible of a person he was. And then you look at it, and you recognize that grace is not there for those people that are good people, because Judah wasn't a good person. But grace underscores the goodness of God. Now let's look at these two principles in light of you and me. This is exactly what Jesus Christ did for us. Our sin separates us from God. God is perfect, for all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. We are unable to get to His level. We cannot earn grace. Therefore, it has to be given to us. Romans 6.23 says, For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life. Gift, grace, that goodness. For by grace are you saved through faith. It is not of yourself. So we come to a place in our lives where we recognize, I'm no better than Judah. My sin separates me. I can't earn... I'm not saved because of my goodness. Look, it is a lie of Satan that he has tried to deceive the world from all the way back into the garden and to this day. That if I'm good enough, I can earn my way to heaven. No, you can't. And for those of us who have trusted in Christ as Savior, we still fall into this trap thinking, well, if I'm good enough, then God will love me more. Grace can't be earned, it's given. And grace just underscores the goodness of God. And so here we see in our own lives how God gave Jesus Christ. But God commended his love toward us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. But we see Jesus who was made a little lower than the angels for the suffering of death. That he, by the grace of God, should taste death for every man. God's grace towards us cost Christ his life. Like Judah, we are undeserving, but God gives grace anyway. In Romans chapter 2, the goodness of God leadeth thee to repentance. You see, grace is the vehicle God uses in salvation to ensure that we get precisely what we don't deserve. No one, no one, no one, apart from Jesus Christ, has ever walked this earth who deserved heaven. No one. And so grace is that vehicle where God says, look, you cannot earn this, so I want to give it to you. It has nothing to do with how good you are. It has everything to do with how good I am. And so God gives this grace. And for you and I, I hope sometimes you feel like Judah may have felt that day. As his dad looks at him and says, you're going to be the ruler of your people. And if Judah Judah had any sense, he should have said, oh no, Joseph is the guy, not me. Joseph's been far more honorable than me. No, 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 dad, let him come through his line. He deserves it. I don't. And you and I should recognize, I I, I don't deserve the goodness of God. I don't deserve his grace. I don't deserve heaven. Because the second we think we deserve it, we misunderstand who we really are. 
We misunderstand grace. But even though we don't deserve it, God looks at each and every one of us, hey, and the truth is, tonight, this morning, excuse me, there are people that you think you're better than. There are people out there in the world that you think, well, I I mean, I, I don't deserve it, but they really don't deserve it. You're right, they don't deserve it, but neither do you. But grace says it doesn't matter. It has nothing to do with their goodness any more than it did your goodness. It has everything to do with God's goodness. And when we recognize that, grace is not reserved for good people. Grace just underscores the goodness of God. Grace is not earned. It is given. And when we come to that place in our life, and we come to Jesus Christ, we say, I cannot get to heaven any other way except you. Then we accept what's given, the gift of God. If you've never done that, you can do that today. It can't be earned. You can't buy it. You can't work your way there. It's grace. If you've accepted Christ and you're over here, don't live your life allowing it to become commonplace. When we forget how evil our hearts are, we forget how much grace we have been given. And the fact that we can have victory over sin, and we can, and the fact that we can be close to God and we can, is all because of grace. And it should make us far more humble because we realized I didn't do anything to get this. But God just gives it. This morning, if you've never accepted that grace, I want to challenge you to do so. If you've accepted the grace and salvation, I want you to take just a couple of minutes this morning to humble your heart and to come before God and say, God, I don't deserve this. There are moments in life that occur to us that we realize I just don't deserve this. Our salvation should always remind us we don't deserve it. You've heard the message. Now I hope you'll respond to it. If you've never trusted Christ as your Savior, now's the time to bow your head and ask Him to save you. In John 6, 37, Jesus tells us that He will not cast out anyone who calls upon Him. I hope that you will call on Him today. If you need help spiritually, we'd love to be of service to you. Leave us a message, would you? At hbcga.org or 770-974-9091. Our service times are 1045 on Sunday morning. 9.30 for Sunday school, 5 o'clock for the evening service, and then 7 o'clock on Wednesday nights. Our services are warm and welcoming, and you will feel right at home. Come and visit us here at Harvest, and call on us if you need us. God bless you.